from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Helmi Pillai, Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow at the Center for European Reform. In this week's episode, our senior fellows, Zach Myers and Luigi Scazzieri, and the head of our Brussels office, Camino Mortero Martinez, will answer some of the fantastic questions you have sent to us. We'll discuss, for example, the long-term impact of Qatargate, the likelihood of the West sending F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, and the EU's response to the Inflation Reduction Act. Our first question comes from Hanna in Stockholm. Last August, American lawmakers approved the Inflation Reduction Act, a $396 billion package of climate investments, which include huge subsidies for U.S.-made electric vehicles. This has caused a lot of frustration for EU leaders who fear that the IRA will draw investment out of Europe. So, Zach, how should the EU respond to the Inflation Reduction Act? Uh, that's a fantastic question. And obviously, the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA, has been causing a lot of anxiety in Brussels and around all of the EU member states in the last few couple of months, which I think is quite interesting because when the EU first commented on the act, you know, there was a lot of support for it because it was the first time America had really taken a, a big step towards kind of embracing the green revolution and tackling climate change. And of course, you know, we know that America is typically much less keen than the EU is to to focus on regulation. So it is kind of natural that government funding and subsidies, you know, carrots rather than sticks, was going to be the way that the US contributed to to tackling climate change. So it's it's funny that the EU is so up in arms about this now. As the, the person posing the question said, the focus has been very much around electric vehicles. And that's especially because the Act requires that to gain access to these subsidies, electric vehicles have to be assembled in North America. But I would say that in general, the concern has been more recently, not just about electric vehicles, but just about the broad scale of the subsidies and um, and how it will affect like, a number of different sectors. And, and I think that the EU has been a little over-anxious uh, about the Act and this idea about investment being vacuumed out of Europe. I think you need to make a distinction between those industries where these subsidies could lead to America becoming a global leader and exporter. And in that case, you can see that that might be at the expense of Europe. But there's also industries where all the major blocks in the world are going to have their own local production or where the main threat is going to be from China, which is something we've seen before in you know, solar panels, for example, where the EU had an initial lead and then all of that production kind of got moved to to China thanks to say, subsidies there. And so in this second block, which is where there's either going to be local production everywhere or China's the main threat, there isn't really a competition between the US and the EU. And I think a lot of the sectors that are targeted by the Inflation Reduction Act do fall into this second category. I think that includes electric vehicles and batteries. And there's reasons for that. One is that cars, obviously, but also batteries themselves are quite heavy and expensive to transport kind of very long distances. So it's natural that you're going to see kind of local production facilities. Batteries in particular are kind of low margin products. So again, it's hard to see kind of a, them all being uh, produced in, in one place. And tariffs on them are relatively high, including in the EU. So, you know, there's, there's a degree of protectionism that 
all the major blocks are adopting. The same is true, I think, of investments in energy and power grids. So the fact that the US upgrades its power grids or increases its degree of green energy production kind of doesn't replace the need for Europe to do exactly the same thing. So I, I think in these cases, Europe and the US are not in competition. And Europe should not worry about spending more to become more attractive than the US, because as long as it's attractive in both places, investment will take place in both countries or both areas. At most, I think what might happen is that the US becomes more attractive and so investment goes there first. But I don't necessarily think that's a, a bad thing. It could lead to economies of scale and kind of a, a trial and error process to production, which means when that tech gets rolled out in Europe, it's going to already be a lot cheaper. Uh, and also, I think European firms are in some places or in some cases, very well positioned to make use of the subsidies that are available in America. So for example, you know, there are many European auto manufacturers who already have facilities in America, and they'll be able to make use of those subsidies um, that are available for American production, take those profits back to Europe, and then invest them there. So I think that, you know, Europe is certainly seeing that there's this EU-US competition, which in a lot of cases doesn't exist. There's a few other factors too, I think we need to, to think about. Uh, one is that the act might just be less effective than is expected. There's certainly a lot of money available by way of subsidies, but it's also heavily qualified. So for example, for electric vehicles to qualify for these subsidies, the auto manufacturers need to very quickly remove Chinese raw minerals from their supply chains. And that is going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult because there are so few other places in the world where those raw minerals are able to be extracted now. And the lead time to create new mines or recycling facilities is you know, going to be several years away. And plus you'll have all, all the auto manufacturers of the world clamoring to do exactly the same thing. So I think that you know, it's, it's easy to look at some of the promises that companies have made to invest in America to make use of the subsidies now and, and take them a little too kind of at, at face value and without a degree of skepticism about whether those plans are actually going to, to turn out. And also, of course, Europe is spending a lot of money itself on subsidies. The COVID recovery funds are very much dedicated to the green revolution and green tech. And in, in quite a few cases, you'll see that actually the amount of money that's available from the state is fairly similar in the US and the EU. So, so I think for all of those reasons, you know, we do need to be a bit skeptical about how big a problem it is. And I think that Europe shouldn't be too quick to enter into a subsidy race with the US. So the commission has proposed a few different plans to, or a few different initiatives to try to tackle the challenge that they see from the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think some of those actually have some good no regrets proposals. So for example, they're looking at making it easier to get permits for green infrastructure. And I think, you know, that's very difficult to complain about. I think that, that's an excellent idea. And similarly, there's an effort to try to streamline access to EU subsidies. And to me, that makes sense. It's quite difficult in the EU for companies to understand what subsidies they could be eligible for. You know, they end up having to hire people to try to navigate the many different kind of complex and overlapping programs that are available and to apply for them. And because you'd have to kind of manually apply and get assessed for eligibility for those plans, it's less certain whether you're going to get money at the end of the day. And so I think that there is a lot of work Europe could do to not spend more money on subsidies, but to make sure that the subsidies are easier to access and more effective. So the US plan is to give tax credits, which are pretty much automatic. And so the EU's plans to allow similar types of subsidies, I think, is, is a good thing. But I'm quite skeptical about this idea that we need to spend more money in Europe. And I think it actually has quite a few downsides. 
One is that if you give member states more options to increase their own national subsidies, that could fragment the single market. We've seen that France and Germany in the past couple of years have been responsible for nearly uh, 80% of all state aid applications, which is really quite extraordinary and makes you realise that France and Germany are really going to be the, the key beneficiaries of relaxing national state aid restrictions. And, you know, that it really could contribute to kind of a two-track economy where you have many other EU member states losing out. The only way to, to spend more and to avoid that problem is to have more EU-wide spending, which would mean kind of wealth transfers from France and Germany to, to other countries. But I think that would largely need to be funded by joint borrowing, and there's very great resistance from a number of EU member states for doing that as well as kind of a more ideological concern about whether more proactive industrial policy and greater subsidies is is really the answer. But for the reasons I kind of outlined earlier, I think that, you know, the, the downsides of, of more subsidy spending probably outweigh any benefits, particularly given that the Inflation Reduction Act is not nearly a, as big a concern as kind of some stakeholders in Europe are trying to make out. Thanks, Zach. That's really, really helpful. If I could just ask another question, which is more related to the UK. Jamie from Manchester writes that in recent months, there has been much discussion about Brexit's many negative impacts on the UK economy and the labour market. But has it had an impact on UK science and technology? And if, if so, what kind of an impact has it had? Yeah, it's certainly had a big impact on science and technology. I think there's two ways to look at this. One is focusing more on academic science, what's happening in UK universities. And the other is to look at how is what's happening in universities commercialised by UK industry and how is kind of technology and innovations that are developed there diffused throughout the UK economy. And I think regardless of which of the two you focus on, the inevitably Brexit has been bad, but I think it's, it's far worse economically than it is academically. If you start with academic science, the UK has always done pretty well. Obviously, we have a lot of top institutions in the UK and... I'm sure many of those institutions are still going to thrive after Brexit. The main concern here has been around the UK's ability to participate in Horizon Europe, which is this 95.5 billion euro research and innovation fund that lasts for seven years. In the, the exit agreement when the UK left the EU, there was an agreement that Britain should be allowed to participate as an associate member of that program going forward. However, because of various disputes, but primarily the dispute around Northern Ireland, the EU has kind of delayed the UK's membership and, and refused to, to finally let the UK in an, as an associate member. That is certainly bad for the UK, uh, as well as the EU, uh, but primarily the UK for several reasons. One is that Horizon provided very important research funding for academics in the UK. The UK has always performed really well in past rounds of Horizon when it was a member. It always got out more than it put in. The second is that there's a kind of an important set of relationships that are built around Horizon with the UK and European institutions partnering, working really closely together, having kind of complementary research programs. And so the inability to participate in Horizon or the uncertainty around it has meant that the UK has had to give up a lot of its leadership of these partnerships and research initiatives, and it is really going to need to kind of align to research institutions elsewhere in the world. And of course it can do that, but it's going to take many, many years. And any sort of UK international program that the government tries to set up to replace Horizon is certainly going to be smaller, have less international heft and prestige, and kind of be less able to attract the best academics. But as I said, I think the UK institutions are probably going to be able to cope with this, even though it's kind of 
of an unwelcome problem. I think the bigger problem is the way that UK industry is struggling with research and development. So we often see British universities producing world-class scientific research, but then the corporate sector is struggling to convert those into kind of new innovative products and services. And then British industry is slow to adopt those new innovations. And you can see that in UK's perennially low productivity growth. Uh, this is not a problem caused by Brexit because it's a problem that we've seen kind of for many years before the referendum. But there are kind of good reasons to think that Brexit has made it worse. One is that Brexit has limited access to skilled European workers in the science, technology, engineering, and medicine fields. The government has tried to liberalise the immigration system to try to mitigate this problem and to still be attractive to workers around the world. But my colleague John Springford and I did some research last year on what had happened to UK immigration numbers. And what we saw is that this liberalisation of the migration system has not made up for the loss of free movement of EU citizens, including in these kind of high-skilled areas where the UK really does need to see more high-skilled labour. Another problem is that business investment seems to have dropped substantially after the UK left the single market compared to other similar countries. And it has, of course, been much slower to recover from the pandemic, as we've seen in recent GDP figures. One possible reason for this is the huge levels of political and policy uncertainty in Britain after Brexit. Uh, when you think about businesses that are thinking about investing in technology or kind of rolling out a new innovation, you can see that this type of investment can be quite risky and it often takes quite a number of years to pay off. And so what you want to see to encourage that investment is a degree of certainty about what regulations are going to look like in five or 10 years time. And the political environment after Brexit has made it very difficult for businesses to understand you know, what that future is going to look like. And for example, how the UK will diverge from the EU in areas that impact innovation. So for example, on data protection, we still don't really have a good idea about how the government's going to tweak the GDPR in the UK and you know what that will mean for whether you can still have data flows seamlessly from the UK to the EU and vice versa. Similarly, there's been a lot of ongoing tinkering with kind of tax incentives, different government, government strategies that impact innovation, and then kind of public funding for research bodies. So with all of this uncertainty, our hypothesis is that it's a climate that isn't very conducive for UK businesses making investments in research and development and science and technology. Uh, I guess the good news is that there are steps the UK can take to fix many of those problems without rejoining the EU. These are kind of some obvious ones, but they include settling the Northern Ireland protocol dispute so that we can have certainty about the UK rejoining Horizon, reducing the very large costs that migrants still face if they move to the UK. So there's much more the UK can do to liberalise and make its immigration system more welcoming. And that's especially important in high-skilled, high-tech sectors. And thirdly, setting out an evidence-based kind of long-term plan for the UK's approach to regulation and R&D funding so that investors have more certainty with which they can kind of make plans and make investments. So all of that sounds easy to do, but of course, political realities post-Brexit may make it hard to achieve in practice. But, but that certainly seems to us to be the steps that the UK needs to take to recover from Brexit's negative impact on research and development.
Our next question relates to the huge EU corruption scandal that broke out last December when the Belgian police charged four people with corruption and money laundering in relation to Qatar, which included the Greek MEP and European Parliament Vice President Eva Kaili. So Laura from Dublin asks, what kind of a long-term impact will Qatargate have on the European Parliament's credibility? I think the one thing that is important to remember about this, this scandal is that it's absolutely not over. And there is a former MEP who was also involved in the affair and he's made a deal with the Belgian prosecutors and will most likely incriminate yet more members of the parliament and possibly other foreign governments like Morocco. So in my opinion, this is just the beginning of Qatar gates. Uh, but let's try and see what it means for the European parliament even at this stage. So right after the scandal broke in December, uh, European Parliament President Roberta Metzola vote to change anti-graft and transparency rules uh, in the European Parliament. So what happened with Qatar would not happen again. She also stressed, and I quote here, that the European Parliament was under attack. And, and to me, both statements show that the fallout of Qatargate could go two ways for the European Parliament. If it does accept uh, some responsibility and so much needed reforms, then I think it can emerge out of this scandal as a stronger and more legitimate institution. But if it shifts the blame to somebody else, like foreign actors or a few rotten apples, then I think it will be in a lot of trouble indeed. Mostly because the parliament has been the most vocal champion against corruption, both inside and outside the European Union. An unresolved and dragging scandal could erode its reputation and most of all, its leverage over the other two institutions, so the Commission and the Council of Ministers represented the member states. And as I said before, whatever happens, I think we are absolutely not done with Qatar gates. And I think the Parliament really must act now if it wants to nip the scandal in the bud. And do you think this will just be about the Parliament or do you think the European Commission or the Council might also be linked to this? Well, we've seen some reports of some activities that some commissioners have done, which have raised some eyebrows. I would be very cautious with this because I don't think we have the whole information so far both on the Parliament's side and perhaps on the European Commission side. I think accusing people of doing something wrong when they haven't is wrong. Uh, we should also uphold the presumption of innocence. But I also think that some of the activities and some of the methods that especially the European Parliament has been using for the past decades or so can be very problematic indeed. I'm not sure about the European Commission, and I'm definitely not sure about the, the Council of Ministers, which is basically the member states. So it would be a bit weird if this sort of spill over there. Thanks, Camino. That's really helpful. If we bring a different topic into the conversation, Francesca from Rome has a question about migration. And she asks, with the growing number of irregular migrants arriving in Europe, does the EU have a plan to address the migrant flows? What do you think, Camino? I mean, the short answer is yes. The number of irregular arrivals is at its highest since uh, 2016. And this makes absolute sense because we've had three years of pandemic restrictions and we have had a relatively balmy winter, although I know that it doesn't feel like this right now, but it has been quite warm. So people are trying to cross Europe again. Uh, since the migration refugee crisis of 2015-2016, the European Union is most concerned with projecting control because that crisis was at its core 
one of total loss of control of the union's external borders, and it ended up damaging the union and so in division amongst the member states. And almost seven years later, we have not overcome those divisions, and if anything, they have become actually more serious. So the European Union does have a plan. It's actually left with very little choice, but focusing on the one thing all member states agree upon, and that is boosting control of the external borders and making sure that those who are ordered out of the European Union do actually leave. So expect all talks about European Union migration policy within the next few months to be about border controls, returns, and instrumentalization of migration, because there's basically no agreement for anything else. And particularly, there is no agreement for redistributing asylum seekers and refugees across the bloc, which is what the European Union calls solidarity. So the much trumped uh, 2020 EU migration and asylum pact will not move much, despite migration making a comeback on the European Union's leaders' agenda. And do you think that these measures will be effective in, in curbing the amount of migrants trying to cross into Europe? I mean, if the question is about stopping people from coming, you know, of course, if you have more border guards, if you build walls and do all these kind of things, then of course you're going to have an impact on the numbers of people coming. You're also going to have an impact on the number of people dying, which is, you know, something that you probably don't have to do and on the amount of money that sort of the smugglers uh, get out of this business. So I think, and I've always thought this, I think it's absolutely wrong to focus on numbers and numbers only because that's not necessarily a measure of how effective and successful your migration policy is. The problem is, as I said before, that the only thing that matters for the European Union at the moment is to send the message that it has control over its borders, that it, it has not and will not lose control again, and that people should come here through legal routes or because they are genuine refugees and they're welcome, but the, all those who are not are not necessarily welcome. And obviously the problem is, and the problem has always been, that we don't really have a lot of legal, legal routes to come to Europe. And we don't have a way of assessing asylum seekers before they set a foot on the European continent or on the islands. So how are you going to have any successful migration policy if you, if you don't know how to bring people to Europe in a controlled and regulated matter. And I think that is the part of the equation that leaders don't want to talk about, politicians don't want to talk about, because it doesn't bring you any political benefits. And the only thing that it can do for you as a politician is to make things more difficult. So in my opinion, little has changed ever since 2016 in terms of the migration debate. And unfortunately, rationality is not one of the things that have changed. And also, it's very important to understand that a number of member states do not even want to have any common asylum and migration policy because they don't believe that should be part of the European Union of the European Union's rules. Uh, so those member states who do not want to have any imposition obligation or whatever you call it to take uh, asylum seekers and refugees are necessarily going to block any efforts uh, to advance in that direction. So the only thing that I can see happening is to have a what we call a coalition of the willing. So some member states actually agreeing to redistribute asylum seekers, as we saw uh, with Italy and France and others uh, later in 2022. Uh, but we are not going to have a common migration and asylum uh, system anytime soon. 
And I think that is very problematic for the future of the European Union projects. Our last two questions today are about foreign policy. The first of these comes from Dominic in London. In January, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, warned that Iran had amassed enough material for several nuclear weapons. So, Luigi, can the EU revive the nuclear agreement with Iran or is it too late? So, it's a very pertinent question, precisely because of the warning of the of the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency. And I think maybe we're not really thinking about the challenge from uh, Iran's nuclear program enough these days. So when Biden became president, the EU uh, began in earnest trying to revive the nuclear agreement. And uh, for some time, it seemed as if the US and Iran were were close to a deal, particularly in August uh, last year. But then uh, negotiations stalled over uh, three uh, sets of issues. First, the fact that Iran demanded guarantees that uh, that the US would not leave the deal in the future, guarantees that Biden uh, couldn't legally give. Uh, secondly, Iran demanded that probe of the International Atomic Energy Agency into its uh, past nuclear activities should be suspended, which was not a an acceptable demand for the West. And the third point of contention related to the designation of the Iranian um, Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization in the United States. So since then, negotiations have uh, essentially stopped. And unfortunately, the, the idea of reviving the JCPOA has drifted away. Uh, the political mood in both the, the US and Iran shifted in the sense that in Iran, hardliners gained uh, much more influence. And in the US, there's very few incentives for Biden to invest political capital in a deal with Iran, and not least uh, because of its uh, support for Russia in its aggression against Ukraine with drones, but also uh, because of uh, Iran's suppression of domestic protests. And all this means that the chances of reviving the deal uh, for the EU are very, very slim. And uh, I would say that we're entering what is a very dangerous phase. Iran hasn't decided that it actually wants a nuclear bomb at this stage, but it can do that relatively quickly. And because it has restricted the access and the monitoring ability that the International Atomic Energy Agency has over its program, the West might not actually get much warning if uh, if Iran does decide to, to go for a bomb. And at the same time, there's a risk that uh, Iran might miscalculate where US and Israeli red lines are uh, concerning the development of its nuclear program, and that at some stage, uh, Washington and uh, and uh, Israel might uh, might actually decide that their only option to uh, stop Iran's nuclear program is to carry out a preemptive strike. That wouldn't be easy because uh, many of Iran's uh, most important facilities are actually quite deep underground, and Iran would retaliate, uh, for example, by using its proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon. So basically, there would be a, a regional conflict. And the closer we get to that scenario, the less Europe's choices uh, matter. The less uh, the less what Europe does matters. So it's a very dangerous situation, but just to circle back to, to your original question, it is very difficult to uh, to imagine reviving the, the joint comprehensive plan of action, the nuclear agreement at this stage. On the other hand, it's just about possible, I think, to imagine that a bare bones, minimal version of the agreement might still be within, within reach. Um, and to the degree that Europe has a role in all this, I think it, it in trying to help bring that agreement about, particularly if it is able to leverage 
the threat of US and Israeli uh, military action against Iran to its advantage. And what would that kind of a minimal agreement look like? That minimal agreement would consist in Iran committing not to enrich to the same level that it's enriching now, so well below 60%, probably going back to 20% uh, at least. Secondly, blending down part of its stock of a highly enriched uranium. And third, giving monitors from the International Atomic Energy Agency full oversight over its program once again. In exchange, Iran would want some relief from sanctions. That's extremely difficult to uh, imagine right now because of the political circumstances that that I described earlier on. But Iran's position could soften if it thinks that there is a real risk of a US and Israeli military strike, that might also put uh, regime security at risk. That's where there might be a narrow space for Europe to actually negotiate that sort of slim down deal. Thank you, Luigi. That's really helpful. And like you said, sounds like a very dangerous situation. If we now move on to our final question today, this comes from Kaisein Talit. So she asks, last month, after intense debating, Germany, the US and many other Western countries agreed to send battle tanks to Ukraine. Almost immediately after the decision was announced, it was reported that Ukraine was lobbying for US-made F-16 fighter jets. French President Emmanuel Macron hasn't ruled out this possibility, but US President Joe Biden said no to this prospect. So... Will the West send F-16s to Ukraine? What are the arguments for and against? So the question of of sending fighters to Ukraine has been with us since the very start of the conflict, because Ukraine has always said it wanted them, said they could make a real difference to to its fight. And so far, the Western response has always been no, I think for for three sets of, of interlinked reasons. The first set of reasons is is technical in the sense that operating and maintaining these uh, fighters is quite complicated. So you'd have to take out Ukrainian pilots, take out Ukrainian technicians for training. That means that they wouldn't be able to fight for a potentially rather long period, many months. And you would also need to uh, adapt Ukrainian facilities such as uh, runways, for example. The second set of reasons is linked to effectiveness. And so many Western countries, including the US, doubt that Western fighters is really what Ukraine needs most at the moment, because air power has actually not played a particularly large role in the war so far. And even if the West did give Ukraine a a few dozen fighters, it's actually unclear whether it would be able to use them to the extent that it wants to because of Russia's air defenses being so strong. So first, you'd need to eliminate those. And at the same time, there is a logistical limit to what the West can can supply uh, Ukraine with. And it's judged that at the moment, Ukraine would find it far more useful to have more tanks, more air defenses, more ammunition, rather than than fighter jets. Uh, And of course, tanks and that's why we've just seen that uh, that debate about uh, the German Leopard tanks play out and, and Ukraine should be getting uh, quite a few of those soon. The third set of reasons why Western countries have been skeptical about providing Ukraine with, with fighter jets is, is political. And it relates to concerns about escalation, about if you give Ukraine weapons that can potentially hit Russia, then that might set off an escalatory spiral with Russia potentially at some stage deciding to retaliate not only against Ukraine, but also against the West. But those are concerns that we've seen becoming more and more watered down because they've cropped up with every weapon system that the West has has given uh, Ukraine most recently with tanks. So I think that's perhaps the set of concerns that might be more more easily overcome. 
And uh, as, as you hinted at, uh, some countries have um, have suggested that they're willing to provide Ukraine with jets. So the Netherlands, Poland, uh, and uh, and France. And um, so y- you can see the debate perhaps slowly shifting. And I can imagine that in a few uh, months' time or, or come autumn, if Ukraine uh, if Ukraine's needs have shifted and the assessment of Western military planners is that jets would make a very big difference, then I wouldn't be surprised if that calculation changed. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to the episode. And of course, a huge thank you to those who sent in questions. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the CR Podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to it and give us a five-star rating. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.